forever. Amen. Let me encourage you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to our two passages for this morning. We're going to look first in the Old Testament at the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. As you find out, we're going to look then in the New Testament towards the end at 2 Peter 3, 18. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, and then 2 Peter 3, 18. So as you find those passages, let me pray for our time here together. Lord, our, our prayer is very simple this morning. That you would open our hearts and you would open our minds that we may both hear and believe. That we may receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered to us in this part of your holy word in, in Jeremiah 31 and 2 Peter 3. Lord, meet with us through your word and may we be better for, for it because we have come before you and with you in your word. This we ask and pray in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So beginning with Jeremiah 31, we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Then the end of Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow... And the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Alright, so it is New Year's Day, first day of this new year, 2023. And you may be one of those types who at some point yesterday or last night or even today make some sort of New Year's resolution uh, to resolve to do something with your life. So if you are that type of person, or you have been that type of person, or if you know somebody who's like that, I want you to take a moment and think through what is the most outlandish, unrealistic New Year's resolution you have ever made? That you've ever made, you've heard somebody else make. The most outlandish, most unrealistic New Year's resolution. Trusting it was made with all the best intentions in mind. But looking back, you see just how unrealistic it really was. Maybe it was a, a, you know, a, a new diet or, or, or a new way of living or something that you had the best intentions in mind. But you look back and you think, there, there was no way I was ever going to accomplish that. So what's the most outlandish? What's the most unrealistic New Year's resolution that you've ever made or you've ever heard of? Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because sometimes I wonder, and I wonder more and more, if that's how Christians feel when we resolve to do, to do better spiritually. That, that looking back, it, it seems to be this very outlandish, un, unrealistic resolution we've made, that we want to do better spiritually. That we get to this point in our lives where we, we take a spiritual inventory of our lives. And we look over it and we realize 
that there, there are things we need to do better. Right? There's ways we can, we can be a, a better Christian. So we resolve, we, we make a resolution to do that. And, and so we decide then that we're, we're going to do everything better. Right? So from this point forward, we're going to go to church every Sunday. It doesn't matter what's happening. We're going to go to church every Sunday. And, and I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to read my Bible. And I'm going to pray every day. And I'm going to listen to only uh, Christian music. And I'm going to stop cussing at football games. Right? And we resolve to do that. We want to do that. We want to be a better Christian that way. We want to be the Christian where we're known that you're going to be at church on Sunday. That, that, that you want to read your Bible every day. That you, you want to be praying for people. You want to be growing in the faith. But inevitably, what happens? Well, we skip this Sunday. And then another Sunday, we start making reasons why... We don't have to be there every week. And then we find that when we get home on Sunday morning, we, we take our Bible and we lay it down the kitchen counter and behold, lo and behold, next Sunday morning, where is it? It's still sitting right there on the, on the kitchen counter. And then prayer is kind of hit or miss whenever we kind of feel like it. And then college football season comes around and sure enough, here comes the customers with it. So why are we like that? Why... Why do we, as God's people, resolve to do something that's good? Going to church is good. Reading your Bible is good. Praying is good. You know, watching what you say, watching how you're living, that's all good. Why do we resolve to do something we know is good? Yet the bad is right there as close to us as our shadow. And eventually it makes its way back into that comfortable part of our lives. Why, why are we like that? Well, maybe it's because of the way we, we look at our resolve and our resolutions. Maybe it's because we start from the wrong place with all the good right and intentions. But if we start from the wrong place, we won't get far no matter how good and right our intentions are. Maybe the problem really is us. And it's because we have the wrong starting place. And so I want us to take a few moments to look at that together this morning for us to Understand what's, what's the right place? Where's the right place for us to begin to read, to go to church every Sunday? To be committed to our church in that way. Committed to reading our Bibles, committed to prayer, committed to living for the Lord. What's the right place for these good and right intentions of our growing spiritually? Well, this, this goes kind of hand in hand with what we're, we're doing this morning. Part of the custom of our church is we have set aside the first Sunday of the new year to have what's we call our covenant renewal service. Now, we're not the only one. Many other churches have this same service on the same day. And, and, and the purpose of it is, as God's people, we want to start this new year by thinking about God, and specifically about the covenant he has made with us and the grace and the blessings of that covenant, but also our part in that covenant made by God with you and me. God never fails on his end of the covenant. He never needs to renew his covenant. He doesn't need to make a New Year's resolution. God's in heaven going, you know, I should probably read my Bible more this year. I should probably be going to church more this year. God doesn't need to renew his end of the covenant, but you and I do. And so we, we have this Sunday where we do this. We started this back in, I believe, 2015. And we've used this time to think about what it means to renew our end of the covenant that God's made with us our good and right intentions for us to grow spiritually. 
We have done this by, by delving into what's known in, in the theological world as, as covenant theology. And so we've asked the questions of what is a covenant? A bond and blood sovereignly administered. Right? How many covenants are there? There's three of them. And who's the one that makes the covenant? Well, that's God. And what's the, what is our end of this covenant of grace? And we won't look at that this morning, but all of this in totality makes up covenant theology and our understanding of it. But I think a part of our understanding, a better understanding covenant theology, is stepping back and looking at the broad picture. Taking a big view to help us better understand not only covenant theology, that we you know, know the nuances of everything, but how that theology applies to us and our part in it, that we best grow through understanding the covenants. So just real quick, I want us to think through this. Big picture, or, broad, or big view, broad picture speaking uh, about covenant theology, we believe that there are three covenants we find in Scripture. And the first is what's known as the covenant redemption, which is pretemporal. And that's a fancy word saying it was made before the beginning of even time. So we, we go to Genesis 1-1, and we see that before even that, before God created all things, he made a covenant. And that covenant was made within the Trinity, a covenant made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem sinners through the death of the incarnate Son. So before we even get to Genesis 1-1, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had made a covenant that the Father would send the Son to be the substitute for our sins and the Holy Spirit would minister that truth to God's people. That's the covenant of Redemption made before time, humanly speaking. And then we come to Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2, and we find that God made a covenant of works with Adam and Eve, and we talked some about that this morning in Romans 5 in our Sunday school class. And his covenant that was made with Adam and Eve was, was a covenant that said that they would enjoy all the blessings of being made in the image of God, all the blessings of having a close fellowship with God, all the blessings of the garden, they would have a perfect life if they did what? There's one thing they were told to do, to not eat uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can eat anything else, right? All the other uh, delicious fruit, all the other delicious trees, they could eat of all that. There's one tree they could not eat of. And as long as they obeyed that, they would live in perfection with God. Well, we know, that, we know the story, don't we? Adam and Eve couldn't even keep one commandment. They couldn't keep just that one. They ate at a tree, and they fell under the covenant, and they introduced sin into God's perfect creation. God didn't fail that covenant. Adam and Eve did. They, their, their disobedience led to sin. They couldn't keep one commandment. So that brings us to Genesis 3. We find then that God makes the covenant of grace, which is viewed as the enactment of that pretemporal covenant of redemption, that God makes this covenant to save his people. The covenant he made in the covenant of redemption is now being enacted through the covenant of grace. I know that's a lot. <laughs> a lot to cram into our brains on, on this Sunday morning. And that's about three works, three weeks worth of covenant theology classes crammed here into this few moments. But I say all that because I want us to keep in mind with all this 
is that from all eternity, our God is a covenantal God. Before there is Genesis 1-1, our, our God is a covenantal God. So to, to know God, to be in relationship with God, to know the essence of who God, there's a part of it where he is a covenantal God. He is the God who made the covenant redemption within his own triumph self. He's the God who made the covenant of works with Adam. And he is the God who made the covenant of grace with his people. Where, as we see with Jeremiah, in this covenant of grace, he promises to be their God and for us to be his people. That's part of who God is. That's part of how he relates to us in his covenant. I will be your God. And on the other hand, you will be my people. And in that promise, as we see going forward in, in, in Scripture, in that promise is the promise of a Savior. So with that in mind, I, I want us to focus in and it kind of laser in on all of this. And we're going to think about it through a question. Why did God make a covenant of grace with his people in Genesis 3? Now that's a big question, isn't it? We could go a lot of directions. But I want us to think about it this way. The reason why God made a covenant of grace with his people in Genesis 3 is because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. They were told by God, right, to not eat of just that one tree of all the garden. And what they do? They, they At some point, they hightail over there and they eat from that very tree. They disobeyed the very word of God. They disobeyed the, the one command given to them by God. And, and they acted as our representatives. So when they sinned, it was on our behalf. And so now that sin nature is passed on to every person every bo- ever born. And so it is because of their disobedience that God makes the covenant of grace. It was because they refused to follow God that God now makes this covenant of grace to save his people from their sins and to save them from this disobedience. And how does he do that? We go from disobedience to obedience. The covenant of grace is that the Father would send the Son, and what would the Son do? He would be born in a manger, and he would perfectly obey his heavenly Father. So part of the covenant of grace has to deal with obedience for our disobedience. And and so that's that's why Paul talks about Jesus in terms of the second Adam. Because the triune God covenanted to send his son to do what Adam was unwilling to do and what you and I are unwilling and unable to do and asked to perfectly obey the Father's will in all things. So, just kind of try to stay along with here with me. I promise we're getting to a, to a specific point here. But when we look at the covenant of grace, we see that a large component of it is obedience. That when we think about grace, Part of, of grace is namely Jesus' obedience. That God made this covenant with us where the Son will perfectly obey the Father because we as God's people cannot and will not obey as we ought to. So as we are just a, a week away from Christmas, we remember that the baby born in a manger, he was born white to obey, to perfectly obey, so he would be the perfect substitute for his people. His obedience for our disobedience. Now, this is where I find that people start to tune out. And they go, well, great. Jesus obeyed for me. End of the story. But that's not all of it. Because when we look at the covenant of grace, a large component of it is Jesus' obedience. 
The large component is our obedience as well. Then we talk about grace, it includes our obedience. Well, how can that be? It seems to talk against each other. Well, it works this way if you think of it in an equation. Jesus obeyed for us, therefore we obey him. That, that, that's, the, that's part of the equation of grace in Scripture. Jesus obeyed for me, therefore I'm going to obey him. When God grants us faith, and we're able to see and know Jesus' great love for us through his obedience, then we are convicted to and compelled to obey the one who loved us so much. That our obedience is a sign of faith and it's a sign of love. For those of us who are parents, we understand, or maybe we're growing to understand, that the best way we get our children's obedience is not to beat them and to berate them and, and to put such a fear in them that they, you know, st- they start going gray and white at the age of eight. But we, we can get our children to obey us through the way we love them, the way we nurture them, and the way we parent them so it becomes their delight to obey us. Where they say, of course I want to obey my father and mother because I see how much they love me. And they only want what's best for me. And the same applies to the Christian faith. When we understand John 3.16, when we understand Romans 8.28, when we understand the great love of God for us, we go, of course we want to obey him. I want to follow after the one who so loved me. I don't want to follow after Satan because I, I know how much he, he hates me. He doesn't love me. He wants to eternally destroy me. I want to follow after one who so loved me that the Father gave his Son and the Son gave up his, his life and the Spirit testifies that wonderful gospel truth to us. We are convicted and compelled to obey the one who loved us so much that he would die for us. That's a sign of our faith and our love and that is meant to be the basis of our resolve and resolution to do better spiritually. We look to Jesus. We see how much he loves us. And we go, of course, I want to be more like him. And that's why it's so disheartening to hear so many people who confess their Christian faith take the stand that they will purposely pursue sin because they know they're forgiven. That to have the attitude of, I'm going to sin because I'm forgiven, so what can God do to me? I want to do what I want to do. And so I'm going to use God's grace to commit these sins. It's like we forget that there's the Ten Commandments. It's like we forget the psalmist teaches, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We forget that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We forget God says, be holy as I am holy. And we forget that the opposite of the work of the flesh is the fruit of the spirit. That we have 
willingly blinded ourselves to God's call to obedience. As we've said before, we, we like for God to be our God. We just want to fudge on what it means to be his people. We don't want to go to hell, but we don't want to give all of our lives to him. And maybe it's because we, we think of obedience to God and his word like, like, a, like a chore checklist. I remember just how I was with my parents. That's because I was a, a horrible kid. But I remember looking at chores going, okay, I know I have to do this. But I know I can do this stuff halfway, and this other stuff I can, I can pretty much ignore. And doesn't that, in a way, summarize how we can approach a Christian life? If I go to church this Sunday, then I'm free to get as drunk as I want to this weekend. If I read my Bible two or three times during the week, then I'm free to skip church this coming week. Our, our family will get together and we'll do a devotion, but we're not going to go to church. If I pray enough during this week, then I have a free pass to, to be unkind to someone I don't like. Yet we find that part of covenant of grace that we've entered into with God is our pledging obedience to him. Not only he will be our God, but we will be his people in faith and in love and in likeness. So what I want us to understand this morning is that this obedience we're talking about here, isn't born from obligation and sheer willpower. Some of us may resolve to to go on a diet because we know we can can say no to this certain kind of food, to bad foods, and we can, you know, go and we have the willpower to go exercise. But humanly speaking, we cannot grow by ourselves. So think again how Peter ends his second letter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is very specific. Grow. But grow how? Grow in Jesus' grace. Grow in his likeness. Grow in the knowledge of him. Where does that growth come from? It comes from his word. How are we going to grow to be more like Jesus? By being in his word. How are we going to grow to know more about Jesus? By, by, by being in his word. When we think about our own you know, physical growth, can, you know, I'm five ten and a half, and that, that ten and a half is very important to me. Um, I'm five ten and a half. If I want to be six foot two, can I just will myself into that? Can I just sit here and go, you know what? My New Year's resolution is by by summertime I'm going to be I'm going to be over six feet tall. Well, that, 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 that's ludicrous, right? I, I can't I can't I can't make myself do that. I can't I can't will myself into that. Um, same as, as with the Christian faith and, and with spiritual growth. We cannot do it on our own. We need help. We need a starting point. And that starting point is faith in Jesus because it's a faith that always leads us to his word. If you want to be more like Jesus, you do so by being his word. If you want to know more about Jesus, you do so by being more his word. If you want to resolve that you're going to be better at going to church, better at reading your Bible, better at praying, better at living the Christian life. You know how it happens? Go to church and be in his word. Take his word and be in his word. Pray through his word. And obey his word. We grow in Jesus by going to the means of grace of Jesus. 
That's why growth leads to obedience. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Good biblical teaching leads to healthy Christian obedience. No one grows in God away from his word. No one grows in God away from his church. No one grows in God away from God. So I've shared with you before, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is, is this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person that isn't. We could probably add and say, the person whose Bible is dusty probably has a pretty dusty faith. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. John Bunyan, who wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, said, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. So we can only grow to be more like Jesus when we are faithful in his word, reading it and obeying it. That's where our resolve and resolution comes from. It comes from Jesus, from being in the grace of Jesus. That's part of the covenant of grace for us. So with that in mind, and your bulletin is an insert. I want to encourage you to, to put it in your Bible to read it later. Uh, it's written by a seminary classmate of mine, Joe Holland. And he's looking at how to structure our Christian lives around the Ten Commandments. Take it and, and look at it later because it's a good example of resolving to grow spiritually from the foundation of Christ and his word. And may this help us in our resolve and resolution to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in the right manner. Let's pray together.